Well, good morning again. It's great to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning. And as I say every week, but I really do mean it, thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA uh, gymnasium. And if we've never had the opportunity to meet, uh, my name is Jamie. Uh, it's my great joy. It's my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors. Uh, and it's a joy to get to start a brand new sermon series with you all uh, this morning called The Way of the King. It's going to be a study of the sermon on the Mount, all right, and it is the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. Now, of course, I'm not talking about me delivering this message, but as we look back at King Jesus in this declaration, this proclamation that he makes, it's a study of uh, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So we'll be doing this for like the next 12 weeks uh, together and just so hopeful and expectant about what the Lord's going to do in and through uh, this this particular series and the way that he's going to mold us and shape us kind of individually, but also collectively together uh, as a community, as the church, and my prayer is that, uh, that there'll be great comfort, there'll be great encouragement in this. At the same time, um, so just you read through it. I encourage you to do it sometime this week. Read through it in kind of like one sitting, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's bound to be something in there that not only will raise a question, but might actually just kind of tick you off and be like, I don't know if I want that or buy that, or how can that be, or how can he make that sort of claim? And there's this call, though, in this that we wouldn't Try and follow our own will or our own way. It's not the way of, and you fill your name in, it's the way of the king. It's the way of Jesus. And what does it look like to actually follow him? That's the calling on your life and my life as we're followers of King Jesus. And so as we get into this this morning, let me read you a, a quote from uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you got like four names, you know you're like a serious player, right? And so David Martin Lloyd-Jones. And this late uh, pastor, preacher, theologian, uh, he wrote an incredible uh, book on the Sermon on the Mount, kind of a collection of his teachings on this. And in there, he says these words. He says, happiness is the great question confronting mankind. The whole world is longing for happiness, and it is tragic to observe the ways in which people are seeking it. The vast majority, alas, are doing so in a way that is bound to produce misery, Anything which, by evading the difficulties, merely makes people happy for the time being is ultimately going to add to their misery and problems. That is where the utter deceitfulness of sin comes in. It is always offering happiness. It always leads to unhappiness and to final misery and wretchedness. But then he says this, the Sermon on the Mount says, however, that if you really want to be happy, here actually is the way. This and this alone is the type of person who is truly happy, who is really blessed. So that's what we're going to explore together over the next several weeks, and we start where the sermon starts. In Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at the first 12 verses this morning. So if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on those back tables. You can get up and grab one of those, go to page 898, and if you don't own a Bible, I would encourage you to take one of those paperback ones home with you. I want you to be able to study this text throughout this series. Your other option is on your phone to go to cpwp.life and swipe over the second card. It says message notes. The text this morning, anything you see up on the, the slides this morning will be listed there. There's space for you to take notes, email them to yourself afterwards, that sort of thing. So I want to go ahead and read this and then we'll make our way through this and give some context to it. Um, but if you're able, would you go ahead and stand as I read Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12? Let's hear God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what I want to do... If we're going to talk about this sermon, one of the things that we have to realize, all right, it's probably fairly obvious, we are starting in chapter 5, which means there's Matthew chapter 1, there's Matthew chapter 2, there's Matthew chapter 3, and there's Matthew chapter 4. I went to seminary to learn that, okay? And so here's, here's the reality, that we have to understand a bit of the, the context. This won't make sense if we just sort of start here without looking at what Matthew's been doing. And Matthew has been laying out a couple things in these opening chapters that are just absolutely brilliant. Now he had help, inspiration of the Holy Spirit, all right, that's a good helper to have, but how he's laying it out, I think there's a pattern and there's also him laying out for us the purpose of what we're about to see here in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And so for a Jewish audience, all right, there's some things as they would have heard this, they would have read through this, they would have been studying the first four chapters, like every light on the dashboard would have been going off. They would have been like, oh my goodness, like we've kind of heard this story before. There are all sorts of details. And the first thing that they would have noticed, I think one of the things that would have been really obvious that we sometimes, all right, or at least I know for me, I can miss is what we see initially here in this pattern Matthew is showcasing for the people, as he's writing to this primarily Jewish audience, what he's showcasing for them is like, hey, I know our hero, he's saying, as a fellow Jew, has been Moses. Moses is the one we, that we revere. Moses is the one that we follow. Moses is the one who's given us the law. Moses is the man, all right? And so he was so revered in the Jewish, in the Jewish culture, in the mind, and all of that. And what Matthew's been showcasing in these opening chapters is there's a new Moses, there's a better Moses that has come on the scene, that has burst onto the scene, and this better Moses is going to change everything. And so as we think about it, all right, if you would have known the story of Moses, you would know some things like this. You would know that he was born under a time when there was this tyrannical ruler who was literally trying to kill all the babies in Egypt, all right, and somehow Moses is able to survive, and then Moses leads God's people. God has been gathering a people. He leads them out of Egypt, and what do they do? They go through the waters. It's the parting of the Red Sea, and after they go through the waters, they come out into the wilderness, and in their journey in this wilderness, Moses is called up onto a mountain, all right? He goes up a mountain, and he receives from the Lord the law, the Ten Commandments, all of that, all right? And so that would have been very much on the minds, the hearts. It just would have been knowledge that the people would have had. And then we go and we look at Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. And in a quick synopsis, what you begin to find is that there's this Jesus that is introduced to us. And this Jesus, too, was born in time under a tyrannical ruler who was trying to kill all of the babies. And this particular Jesus, with his parents, as this young infant, has to flee to where? Oh, he has to go to Egypt. And then he's called out of Egypt. And then in Matthew chapter 3, we get this declaration, we get this story, we get this account of Jesus' own baptism. All right? And so Jesus goes down into the water and is delivered, and there's this word that is spoken that this is my beloved son. And immediately after that... Where does he go? Well, what did Moses do? Moses came through the water and went into the wilderness for 40 years. What happens now? 
Jesus comes up out of the water, goes into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. All the lights on the dashboard would have been going off. Like, whoa, 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 we've kind of heard a variation of this story before. And then Moses in the wilderness would go up the mountain to receive the law. And now we hear at the very beginning of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, it's the exact same language. He went up on the mountain. But rather than receiving the law... The new and better Moses is here, and now he is going to declare his own proclamation, his own law, his own set of, hey, this is what it looks like to follow me. Something better has come on the scene. So it's one of the key things that we need to see if we're going to understand the Sermon on the Mount. But beyond that as well, there is this great purpose here that Matthew's been showcasing in that pattern of Moses and understanding that. And so a couple of things we need to clarify, because you can read this. I tell you, if you go and encourage you to do it, read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in one sitting, there'll probably be some times you're like, man, is it saying that I have to do these things in order to achieve salvation? And so one of the things very clearly we need to lay out, and we'll unpack this as we journey through this great sermon together over multiple weeks, It'll take us all the way to Advent. What the purpose is not. For one, it's not entrance. It doesn't mean you have to do these things in order to appease God, to achieve salvation. That is a wrong reading interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. So there's some that have said, well, that's what it is. And I know that I think that clearly goes against the totality of what the scriptures are teaching. And we will see in the Sermon on the Mount that that is not what Jesus is emphasizing. So sometimes people don't know what to do with it, though. They go in this other extreme and say, what it is depicting is an ideal world, one where once Jesus comes back and he sets everything right, this is what the world will be like. And so it's sort of this idealized picture, and it's meant to sort of showcase for us, like, this is what it'll be like, but it doesn't have any bearing on your life and on my life. You know, it has no bearing on what your Monday is going to be like. This is just off in the distance, in the future, some sort of end times future vision of what the world is going to look like. Now, there's some truth in that, but that's not what Jesus is driving at. He's not trying to get us to just sit back and say, oh, won't this be nice when all this happens? There's something else that's happening. And the way to understand truly what is going on here is we got to go back for a few minutes. And so, yes, we're going to get into Matthew 5, but we have to understand even what Jesus is declaring in Matthew chapter 4. And so Matthew 4, verse 17, he says these words. He gathers, all right? gathering people, starting his public ministry, and it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, and here's kind of Matthew's kind of shorthand way of summarizing, what was Jesus doing? What did he come on the scene to do? He says, repent, which means to move in a new direction, to turn a new direction, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You'll read other accounts, the kingdom of God, those are interchangeable terms, but the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At hand. So for Jesus, his big idea, the big proclamation is not you inviting Jesus into your heart, all right, as important as it is to accept Jesus as your Savior. There's something that includes that, but it's much, much bigger than that, and it's the kingdom of God. That there's something that Jesus has come to announce. He's saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here, it's what you've been waiting for. And so to rightly understand this, we have to know, and this would have been very obvious to the people back then who longed for a king. To come. They would have known the story. They would have known that back in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, God says these words. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And then what do we learn about humanity? What does God tell us about ourselves as people made in his image? God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Have dominion. The language there is rule over. 
the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God's original intent is what? He's the ruler, he's the king, and he is in, he's given us a great responsibility, a great privilege, all right, to rule with him, to rule under his reign, to take what is the Garden of Eden and spread it and go further and see this world that's chaotic turned into something that's harmonious and beautiful where one can enjoy the presence of God like everywhere, to fill everything with the presence of God. Sounds like an amazing plan, except most of you probably know this story, that we get two chapters of that. And by Genesis chapter 3, where things go is this, that our original parents, Adam and Eve, said, you know what? We don't actually like the kingdom of God. We don't want to follow the way of the king. We'd rather follow the way of Adam than the way of Eve. And so what they do is they believe the lies of the serpent, all right? They take of that fruit, and what begins to happen is everything spirals out of control. Sin enters. There's fracture. Things are splintered, torn apart. But God in his grace says one day he's going to send one that would crush the head of the serpent. And so from the very beginning... There's been this hope, there's been this longing that God will get his people back. God will come again and he will make things right. So this is a loaded statement what Jesus is saying. For the people back then, they would have understood, oh, okay, we're talking Genesis 1, 2, and a little bit of chapter 3. They would have also known that God in his grace and his providence was calling a people to himself, but this people didn't always live in obedience to him, all right? Uh, they are people that find themselves eventually enslaved in Egypt, all right? And yet they are rescued. This is part of the story I recapped a moment ago about Moses. He delivers them, and what we find in Exodus 15 is this. They've been delivered out of slavery. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider, he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. What's happening here is there's this praise of God. He's the king. And he's calling a people to himself. He's showcasing once again what it's going to look like when God rescues his people. Now it would be pretty amazing if from here they go into the wilderness and they get the law, right? And Moses comes down and he tells them, here's how you're to live. Here's how you're to live in God's kingdom. God is a king who's rescued you. God is doing something. He's leading you to the promised land. Just follow. You want to flourish as, as humanity. You want to be what God has created you to be. You want to be this sort of new kind of humanity. Just follow what God has given to them through the law. He rescues them. It's his grace. And then he gives them the law to say, this is how you're to order your life. And it would be amazing if they had followed that. But you know the story, right? Because the way the story played out is how my story plays out and your story plays out is that eventually there's rebellion and there's, no, I still don't want to do it. It's the same old, tired story of Genesis 3 played out over and over and over again. I think I'll be king for a time. I think I know best. I think I can do what I want to do. That'll actually bring happiness. As the people rebel and there's more exile, there's all these difficulties that they encounter. But the poets, the prophets kept speaking this word, they kept announcing to the people through great tribulation, trials, difficulties, I've been reading my Bible reading plan, you know, I'm reading about Jeremiah, I'm reading about Ezekiel, reading Isaiah, I mean, some of the things these guys endured just to showcase like, okay, don't forget, God is king, he's going to come back, will you rightly order your life, will you come under his rule in reign? And there was this expectation for the people that when Jesus comes on the scene, one of the things that they would have been waiting for and longing for for hundreds of years would have been an experience. What they hoped for was an experience of what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 52. This would have been known by them. 
he describes this. The prophet speaks these words, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. They've been waiting for someone to come and say and announce the king is here. How beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. God is doing something again. This is the voice of your watchman. The language here is one who would be on the wall, just sort of looking out in the distance, watching and waiting, just hoping maybe somebody will come. Maybe someone will come and announce that the king is actually coming. They lift up their voice and together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. And we hear that story in this kind of quick recap, all right? Just kind of flying through that, this quick overview. This would have been the backstory. This would have been all the stuff the people of God, the Israelites, the Jewish people were familiar with. They longed for this. They told their kids and their grandkids and their great-grandkids and generation after generation wondered, would the king come? Would there be a time where we would look out and see, oh my goodness, here comes the one who is to rule and to reign. And so in Matthew 4, verse 17, when Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he is saying, Moses couldn't get you there, but I have come. So maybe a way to think about this as we journey together in this, a purpose is Matthew, really God is showcasing for us in this teaching what it looks like when Jesus takes his world back. What does it look like when God comes on the scene and says, all right, enough of this. It's time to set things right once and for all. You can't do it in your own strength. You've already proven that, all right? I am coming and I'm going to enter in and I'm going to take my world back and I'm inviting you to participate in this kingdom work. And as God has always done, going all the way back to Abraham and you're seeing him gather a people, if we were to read, you can go read more detail here, but here's Matthew 4, 18 to 19. Here's what we read right after Jesus declares that. What's he doing? He's gathering a people. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he said, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Come, be part of my kingdom. And we know that they immediately, they drop their nets. What would these two become? They become part of the disciples, the 12. It's reconstituting, hey, we had Israel and the 12 tribes, and now Jesus is handpicking his 12. The king is on the move. The king is taking his world back. And he's telling us what it's, going to be, what it's going to look like. As we read a few verses later, he went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogue. And this is what we see throughout this sermon, all right? It's teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So there's teaching, proclaiming, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him. Now look who's beginning to gather. Look what the crowds are comprised of. All the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. This is who begins to gather around Jesus. And it's in this context, as he shows up and he says, I want to show to you, I want to showcase for you what it looks like when I take my world back. He's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the one who's going to redeem this world, he's going to renew this world. And he says, the king is here, I'm gathering a people, and now the crowds are beginning to gather and wondering, how can I get in on this? What does this actually look like? And then we get now to chapter 5. And we get this section that is famously called the Beatitudes. Now, 
Here's what you need to know, all right? I've got limited time uh, th- this morning. We, a few years ago, we preached an entire series, all right? We went, we took one beatitude at a time and did an entire sermon on each one, all right? We're not gonna do that today, all right? This is gonna be a quick flyover. There are more resources on this. I'm happy to help you with that, point you in the right direction. But I want us to see how Jesus begins to start out and what's happening here. Why does he, after he sits down and begins to teach them, verse one to two, why does he say these things in this moment? Of all the things that he could have started with, what is actually happening? What does this have to do with Jesus taking his world back? The people of promise is what we'll see. That there's this word that's spoken over them, blessed are, blessed are. Did you hear that repeated as I read it a few moments ago? But there can be another misunderstanding oftentimes of these particular statements of Jesus. They can seem sort of cryptic. It can be like, what in the world's going on? Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, says this. The the Beatitudes simply cannot be good news, he says, if they are understood as a set of how-tos for achieving blessedness. They would then only amount to a new legalism. They would not serve to throw open the kingdom, anything but. They would impose a new brand of Phariseeism, a new way of closing the door, as well as some very gratifying new possibilities for the human engineering of righteousness. There's a temptation to read these and think, okay, this is the list of things that I need to do so that I can earn the blessing. What Jesus is communicating here at the beginning, all right, is he's like, no, no, no. I'm speaking this word of blessing over who? Over the disciples that have gathered who are not the best of the best common fishermen. He's communicating to a crowd that is full of all kinds of people, all sort of ailments, all sort of afflictions, all sort of things that are difficult. They are not the ones in culture that would have been considered winning and dominating and just everybody wanted to be around. And Jesus begins to speak in that context to that crowd, to those people. And the words are being spoken to us here this morning. If you're like, man, I don't know if I measure up. I don't know if I could actually earn the blessing. Well, here's the good news. You you can't, but God pronounces blessing. He says those that come to even recognize their need are actually blessed. It's not who you would expect. The expectation would have been, yeah, we're blessing the people that have it all together. We're blessing the religious leaders. Blessed are you because you've memorized the Torah. Blessed are you because you're perfectly obedient. Blessed are, are you because of you fill in the blank. And that's not what he does. I was listening to a, a teaching th- this week on Matthew chapter four by a guy named Tim Mackey. He runs the, uh, the Bible Project, which I really commend to you. And in it, he began talking about, uh, he, he referenced this illustration. I'm like, ooh, that's good. I will rip that off and I'll give him credit, right? Uh, and so in it, he talked about this, these artists uh, that he had recently discovered, all right, um, that somebody had introduced to him, all right? And the artist's name are Tim Noble and Sue Webster. You might be familiar with them. I was not familiar with them. Uh, two British artists. And one of the things that they were known for. Now, caveat, I looked up their stuff. Some of it's brilliant. Some of it's like can't show in church. Okay, so anyway. Um, but these ones are amazing, all right? And here's what they're known for, all right? One of the things they became famous for is that they would take average ordinary things What you see in this picture here is a discarded ladder. It's the scraps, the pieces of metal and wood that are broken and frayed and all of that, and a few other things, and they kind of compile them together. It's like, okay, well, that's random, that's interesting. You're looking at that like, how do I interpret that, right? Is that what we're supposed to to do here? And then, as part of their exhibit, people would gather around and the lights would go completely off. The room would be completely black, and they would shine a solitary spotlight there on these little piles of seemingly junk. And what would it produce is you'd see that on the back wall. 
And this was this way of sort of showcasing amongst other things. It's like, oh, there's that, and it doesn't look like much, but look what it produces when the light shines through. Here, here's another one. You see this pile. I'll put it up here in just a moment. I mean, it is trash. Literally, they collected every bit of trash, apparently, of things that they ate, like at restaurants and junk food, over like a six-month period of time and used that, all right? And so there's the pile of trash, and there's them as the artists uh, enjoying wine and a cigarette, apparently, okay? Fascinating. It's this sort of imagery that I think we need to keep in mind as we look at the Beatitudes of like at first glance, Jesus and the people that are around him and the people that are always around Jesus and how, if I'm honest, like who I am in the world and who you and I are, are in the world, it's like, man, like we don't, we don't measure up. We don't have it all together. Sometimes don't we feel more like this kind of this, this pile of junk here, or the scraps or this sort of just leftover whatever. It's like what is beautiful or good about that? And then Jesus begins to shine the light of the kingdom of his gospel and it does something beautiful. And that's what's happening here in the Beatitudes. And so I'll just sort of do a quick flyover of these. These first three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's looking out over the crowds that are gathering now. It's the crowds that will continue to gather around him. He's saying, you're actually blessed. He's like, you that are poor in spirit, you, and Luke would say even just, you that are poor, just leaves it there in the kind of the economic realm. And so including both the spiritually poor, it's just like, you don't have it together. Right? This is the tax collector crying out, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus says, that man went home justified. You could say, that man went home blessed. Not because he cleaned himself up. It doesn't tell us even that he switched from being a tax collector at the time. Right? He's like, that man understood his spiritual poverty and his need. He had nothing to bring. He's empty-handed. He's destitute. And the language that Jesus pronounces is more than just a fleeting happiness. Sometimes blessed gets translated as happiness, but it's this idea of flourishing, of wholeness, of a right relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, the poor in spirit are the ones that get invited in. They get the kingdom of heaven. He looks out and he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Not the people that have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. Not the ones that have kind of figured it out. Not the ones that kind of can self-talk themselves into feeling good. He's like, are you depressed? Are you isolated? Are you full of anxiety? Are you grieved about the world you live in? Are you grieved about your own world? Are you grieved about your heart? Are you grieved about just the brokenness that you feel and that you experience that's not theoretical. It's like living, like it's in you all the time and you're grieving it. Come on. I'm showcasing for you, Jesus says, what it looks like when I take my world back and my world includes the poor in spirit. My world includes those who mourn and they just can't stop crying. All right, come on. That's who he invites in. He says, blessed are the meek. It's a word we use a lot, right? And we tend to associate meekness with weakness. Meek people seemingly would be those that just get run over. Like nobody even sees them. They don't take notice of them. Maybe this is the way that you feel. You're just like, I'm kind of just doing my thing. But nobody actually notices. There's this humility about you. And the world would say, hey, don't be meek. You got to showcase your strength. You got to let people know. All right, make sure you build your brand. You get out. You do these things, right? People need to know you. And the meekers, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know if I can even do that. Does even, anyone even care about me or my story or any of that? Just kind of behind the scenes, all of this. And Jesus says, it's not just those who mourn. It's not just the poor in spirit, the meek. I invite you. Come on in. This is the people that I'm inviting to the party. This is what it looks like when Jesus takes his world back. 
I love this description of, I think it's a great description of meekness. Uh, there's a tiny little book uh, called the, um, the Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness by, by Tim Keller. And in it, he says this. I think it's a great description. A way to think about meekness would be a self-forgetfulness. All right? He says this. Friends, wouldn't you want to be a person who does not need honor nor is afraid of it? Someone who does not lust for recognition nor, on the other hand, is frightened to death of it. Don't you want to be the kind of person who, when they see themselves in a mirror or reflected in a shop window, does not admire what they see but does not cringe either? Wouldn't you like to be the type of person who, in their imaginary life, does not sit around fantasizing about hitting self-esteem home runs, daydreaming about successes that gives them the edge over others? Or perhaps you tend to beat yourself up and to be tormented by regrets. Wouldn't you like to be free of them? Wouldn't you like to be the skater who wins the silver and yet is thrilled about those three jumps that the gold medal winner did? To love it the way that you love a sunrise, just to love the fact that it was done, for it does not matter whether it was their success or your success, not to care if they did it or you did it. You are as happy that they did it as if you had done it yourself because you are just so happy to see it. It's meekness. The world does not celebrate this. And Jesus says, come on. My world, these are the blessed ones. Jesus will group these next three together. He says, then blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, maybe for a time, hunger and thirst can be a good thing. Maybe it's a set of time, you know, set aside time for fasting. But let's just be honest. Most of the time, right, unless it's under those conditions, hunger and thirst, it's miserable. Nobody wants this. Jesus is saying, there's people out there, they just feel miserable and righteousness, this idea of like they're looking out and like, is the world in right relationship with each other and with God? And they're like, no, it's not. And so there's this deep hunger and so they walk around all the time. It's similar to mourning. It's just like with this pain that they can't seem to get rid of. It's this hunger pain, it's this thirst. And they're wondering like, will anything ever satisfy? And Jesus says, in my kingdom, it will. You will be satisfied. You won't be given just enough to barely make it. Your cup will be overflowing in my kingdom. You're actually blessed when you have that hunger and thirst. It says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's not go and be merciful in order to earn the blessing. He's saying there are people that are gathering around him and he's looking at like some of you are merciful people and you're probably taken advantage of and there are people that they never reciprocate and they never you know, offer anything back to you and you can like the meek sometimes just get run over and he's like I see you, I know you, I commend you, blessed are you. You will actually be shown mercy. Other people may not do it, the world may not recognize it, but in my kingdom, when I take the world back and set everything right, you're blessed. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To have this undivided, the pure in heart, it's not this double-mindedness, it's not this lack of focus, it's not a distraction of like, okay, I wanna do my thing and God's thing, there's this, there's this purity. And none of us do this perfectly, but Jesus is saying there are people that are seeking to be devoted. Seek first his kingdom. And he's like, I, I see that and I bless that. It's what it looks like to be part of my kingdom. You will actually see God. How glorious will that be when we get to experience the fullness of God's presence. But there's an invitation right here and right now to know the presence of God. The last three, he says this, and these sort of get grouped together. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Jesus looks out and he says, the people that are part of my kingdom, they seek to be peacemakers in the world. You're like, oh, cool, that sounds great. No, it's terrible. 
Think about it for a moment, right? If you ever tried to be a peacemaker, like you really try and enter in, you're an impartial, like kind of third party, and so you're listening to this person's story, and then you're over here and you're listening to this person's story, and you're trying to be empathetic here, and you're trying to be empathetic here, right? And, and then people are asking, well, what did they say? And you're kind of caught in the middle, and you're trying to navigate this. What happens? You can't make either side happy. You're doing the hard work of trying to bring these people together to reconcile it, and both of them just like you. Both of them are taking shots at you. Welcome. Jesus, I see you, Jesus says, and blessed are the peacemakers. Because the world may not value it, the world may not recognize it, the world might try and shun you. He's like, you know what? You know what you guys get? You get to be called sons of God. Your family, you belong, that can never be taken away from you. Those of you that are seeking to be peacemakers in the world, blessed are you. And these last two sort of get lumped together where Jesus then looks out and it says, blessed are those. How strange is this language? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he begins to elaborate on that. It says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, listen, some of you, you're gonna seek to be peacemakers, you're gonna seek to, to follow after me, and persecution will come. But know this, you also get the kingdom of heaven. And some will revile you, he says. And the language is like, you're being reviled, and they'll persecute you, they're gonna utter all kinds of evil against you, all right? They'll take to the comment section on your social media, right? They will, they will start this campaign against you. Like He's like, that is going to happen. And here's what you're called to do. Don't revile back. Don't lash out. Rejoice and be glad. Realize that you're blessed. Not because these people, it's like, oh, it's, so, it's such a great blessing to be sinned against. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I see you and I know you. I'm taking my world back. You're part of my kingdom now. Your reward is great in heaven. And he's like, just so you know, this has happened to the prophets who were before you. He's like letting you be part of that story. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Oh, so that's the story that I get to be part of. I get to be used by God in the way that the prophets were used. Now, that wasn't always easy. But there's a blessing that is there. So as we think about this word, as we make our way through this great sermon of Jesus together, we have to see over and over again that he speaks this word here, you're blessed. And he's looking out at the crowd, I think, right then and there and saying the people that were, it's this upside down kingdom, the people that wouldn't have counted on being you know, named as blessed, they would have looked at their condition in life and been like, it's kind of miserable, people overlook us. He's like, no, you are actually blessed. So it's a pronouncement of blessing, but it's also an invitation, not in anything to earn, but once we receive the grace of God, think about it, the storyline of the scriptures, rescued out of Egypt, then given law and instruction. It wasn't, here's the law and instruction, if you obey enough, we'll rescue you out of slavery. No, no, Jesus liberates us, God liberates us, and then he gives us a way to live that's the best possible way. And so there's this invitation to become who God has created us to be. I'll quote one more time from The Divine Conspiracy by Dallas Willard, and he says this, and it's a great summation, all right, of what it looks like to become a follower of Jesus. Jesus said to his original disciples, what? Come follow me, and he began to teach them. When Jesus gave us the Great Commission at the end of Matthew, right? Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. 
We tend to like the go and make disciples, evangelize, all right, they get baptism, woohoo, we celebrate that. Oh yeah, but there's this other part, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded, that there's a whole new way to live as we follow the way of the king, and it's the best possible way. The enemy will still come to you like the serpent did in Genesis 3 and say, that's not the way. You need freedom, you need autonomy, you need to do you, you need to do what you want to do in this world in order to actually experience joy. And it's a lie literally from the pit of hell. And Jesus says, there's a whole other way. I am taking, I'm reclaiming my world back. And there's this invitation, what starts with blessing and then to become, not just someday in the future, but right here and right now, like six months from now, a year from now, are you and I looking more and more like people that are following the way of the king. Dallas Willard says it this way, I am learning from Jesus to, to uh, let's just say live, not lie my life, all right? So there you go. Um, somebody needs to learn to type. That's, that's, not, that's on me, not Willard, just for the yeah, for record. All right, I am learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did, but I'm learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. Let me read that one more time. I know what a disciple looks like. I'm learning from Jesus to live my life as he would live my life if he were I. I'm not necessarily learning to do everything he did. That's impossible. We're gonna see like all the miracles. Like we can't do that. But I'm learning how to do everything I do in the manner that he did all that he did. May we grow in this. May we become the disciples that Jesus invites us to be. Can we look at that? Can we just be honest though? Like, all right, I like the word of blessing and all that, but this idea of like, how do we become this? It can be a bit overwhelming. You can see where the default of the human heart, even to look at this sermon and this list, even initially the Beatitudes, like, all right, I've got to do this. I've got to kind of muster up the strength. And we would be misreading again. We need to go back. We need to understand what it looks like to actually be blessed, is to actually understand, to become a disciple, to understand the provision that Jesus has made. So as you and I think about this, if we were to go back, all right, and you look at verses three to 12, or I'm not gonna preach all of them again, but just think for just a moment. Who was one who at one time was rich who became poor, that we might, by his poverty, we might actually become rich. Is there anybody in the story that we can think of? Who's one that, that came, who mourned over his city, who looked out over Jerusalem and wept, who looked out over his friend Lazarus that had just died, and he says that Jesus wept, even though he knew in a few moments he was gonna raise him from the dead. Who do we know that was meek, like a lamb led to the slaughter, did not open his mouth? You see, as we go through this, the way that Jesus perfectly embodied all of the Beatitudes, that he was merciful, that Jesus himself was pure in heart, had this single devotion to do the will of the Father. Even when he was praying and pleading, can this cup pass from me? I don't wanna drink this. I don't wanna take the wrath of the Father upon me. I don't wanna die the death that all these people deserve. Can, can, is there any other way? And then he says, not my will, but yours. There's a devotion there, a single-mindedness that Jesus has. The peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If there ever was anybody that was a peacemaker, and in doing so, it brought upon persecution and tribulation and trial, it was Jesus. 
In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, Scott McKnight says this. He says, the one who is blessed by God is Jesus. And those whom he blesses are those who take on his ways, his manners, and his love and extend it to others. Jesus was poor and humble. Jesus burned up his days pursuing righteousness and justice. And Jesus created God's peace everywhere he went. But paradoxically, his kind of love is so sacrificial, it cost him his life. So that learning to read the Beatitudes in their Jewish context must give way to reading them in the context of the crucified. We can't understand our calling unless we see the way that Jesus perfectly embodied this, that Jesus was the one who went to the cross, that Jesus was crucified for you and me so that we might actually be blessed. So close with this. Ephesians 1 is a beautiful summation and this word of blessing is spoken about Jesus but then ultimately about us, those that are seeking to follow the way of the king who understand our own poverty. We understand that we can't do it. We trust solely in the finished work of Jesus and now we're invited into this whole new world that Jesus is taking back his world and he's inviting us to participate. He's inviting us to point more people to him. He's inviting us to live in a whole new way through the power of his spirit, through this gospel, this good news. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is being spoken to you if you're a follower of Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He's brought us into the family according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. It's not just a little bit in the cup. It's lavished. It's overflowing. That Jesus lived the perfect life life, the sinless life, the life I'm called to, the life that you're called to, and we have failed miserably. We don't deserve the blessing of God, and yet Jesus comes and willingly dies in our place, is substituted in our place. So I'm going to pray for us. I want to give us some time then to just reflect as we'll continue in our service. But the big question throughout this series, and just as a follower of Christ, it just is every single day, not just one time when you made a decision, Maybe today some of you need to do that. You need to move from death to life. It's, I, I wanna follow Jesus. I'm all in. I still got some questions and that's okay, but I wanna give my life to him. I wanna turn from my sin, trying to make it the way of you fill in the blank for your name. I want to be about the way of the king, about the way of Jesus. Will you follow Jesus? Will you trust that living in his kingdom is the best possible way to live? Will you follow him by asking him for help to live faithfully? Will you trust that the spirit of God is alive at work in you, bringing conviction of sin, helping you turn in a new direction, but also empowering you to live in a whole new way? So I'm gonna close in prayer and take some time. What is it that the spirit's bringing to mind maybe you need to repent of? And remember what God has done for you in Christ. And I'm gonna invite us that we're gonna to rejoice together. So let's, I'm gonna pray. Take some time to, to reflect. As we come up for communion in a moment, that'd be time, you, if you got elementary kids, go, go get them so they can come in for the last part of the service. But let me pray for us and give us a moment of reflection. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace. Thank you for giving us this text in the book of Matthew. Jesus, for this incredible Sermon on the Mount that challenges us, that convicts us, that ultimately encourages us, that you showcase for, what, showcase for us what it looks like when you take the world back. 
And that's not just someday off in the future, but it's right here and right now that we get to be part of your kingdom work. And so we would pray that we would be a people that would seek first the kingdom, that we would seek first your righteousness, that we would pursue the things that honor you, the things that bring glory to you, that the things that make your name more famous in our community. I pray that we would follow you. Holy Spirit, we need your help desperately. We cannot do this in our own strength. And so right now, would you be leading us in a time of just repentance, of confession of sin? Would you also comfort us by reminding us again and again of the beauty and the wonder that is the gospel, this good news that we get to be part of? And so God, I pray that you would hear our prayers, that you would get your glory, and that we as your people would experience great joy. It's in Jesus' good name we pray, amen.